0: Hello and welcome to another installment of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton.
1: I'm Erin Hutchinson. I'm Polina Ivanova.
0: Today we're welcoming onto the program Dr. Leora Halperin, Assistant Professor of History and Jewish Studies, as well as Endowed Professor of Israel-Palestine Studies at University of Colorado Boulder. She also holds a PhD in History from UCLA 2011. Leora, welcome to the
2: podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm
0: very excited to have you on. The topic of today's discussion is Language Diversity in Mandate Palestine. So we're dealing with the time period 1920 to 1948. Uh, it's the subject of Dr. Halprin's new book, "Babel in Zion, which has come out last year with the Yale University Press. Congratulations on that publication, uh, Dr. Halprin. Thank you. And "Babel in Zion looks at this uh, fascinatingly complex linguistic landscape of Mandate Palestine and the various languages that were spoken there, as well as the politics surrounding what would be the official language or indeed official languages of that region during this period of British rule. So, Dr. Halperin, I want to ask you about the title, Babylon Zion. I mean, it's it's a good title, right? It's catchy. Um, But what was the message you were trying to convey by uh, choosing this title for the book and framing it as such?
2: So, the title of the book actually came from some of my primary sources. I found, looking at Zionist and Jewish sources from throughout the Mandate period, that those committed to the promotion of modern Hebrew as a national language, but were deeply anxious about the possibility that Hebrew could indeed become the major spoken language of the Jewish community, consistently and continually invoked the metaphor of the Tower of Babel to describe what they feared would happen should Jews not unite around a a single language, and also what they saw as the Historical backdrop that they were trying to counter. That is a history of Jewish mul- multilingualism, mm-hmm. language diversity, and language mixing. So, as I continued to encounter um, statements such as, you know, if we do not unite around Hebrew, we will have a Tower of Babel in Palestine, I realized that this was exactly the title that I wanted to choose for the book.
0: Right. And so the image of Babel is sort of the linguistic threat posed to the Zionist project and, and the figures that you're uh, alluding to. Uh, is there another side of the story to tell there? Is, is Babel and Zion about, uh, are, are there other characters who felt differently about uh, that sort of Babelesque? nature of mandate palestine.
2: Yeah, so what i found is i looked at my sources and i i looked at sources from a really wide range of um, places, not only zionist ideologues but ordinary individuals who may not have been ideologues. I found that in fact, alongside a more official narrative of activism and devotion to a national language, there were much more varied and diverse Uh, attitudes in the Jewish community of Palestine about language practice. There were those who actively promoted the use of languages other than Hebrew, um, some of them promoting newspapers and theater in other languages, but perhaps the vast majority recognized that languages other than Hebrew had an essential role to play in the lives of them as individuals or the lives of their community. Um, So... As far as the realm of education was concerned, there were those who understood that alongside Hebrew, it was absolutely necessary to teach English as well as Arabic, and in some cases also French, or even Ottoman Turkish at the very beginning of this period, um, in order to be in touch with and in contact Mm -hmm. with important other communities in Palestine and beyond. Um, In the realm of commerce, there were those who understood that if this was to be a community linked to global markets, languages other than Hebrew would be essential. Um, so you know as I go through the different parts of the book I look at those who for reasons both practical and in fact ideological there were reasons to take very seriously languages other than the official national language of Hebrew. Mm-hmm.
3: And so what were the languages that the Jewish settlers spoke in,
2: in the Mandate Palestine?
0: Right this is a this is a global right this is, we got to put this in the global context it's not a monolingual community.
2: Absolutely. Well this is a community of people who Almost without exception, none of them at the moment of their immigration were speaking Hebrew as a mother tongue, right? It was not a mother tongue of Jews um, around the world. Um, And that meant the Jews were speaking really the whole palette of of European and Middle Eastern languages that you might imagine. Um, The largest population of immigrants were coming from Eastern Europe and the Russian Empire, later the Soviet Union, Mm -hmm. Yiddish was the most widely spoken mother tongue, um, but there were many speakers of uh, European state languages, Mm -hmm. be that Polish, um, Russian, German, Romanian, Hungarian. Um, You have smaller numbers speaking Western European languages, although there were much smaller immigrations from those places. Mm -hmm. And then there were small waves of immigration from parts of the Middle East, although the much larger immigration would occur after Israeli statehood. There were those coming from Yemen. There were those coming from other parts of the Levant, Egypt, Syria, uh, North Africa. So you have that whole palette of languages as well.
1: Um, So can you talk a little bit about... The process of um, introducing Hebrew to these um, diverse multilingual communities? How did that work out?
2: Yeah, so going into this project, I found that there had been a good deal of research preceding me about to answer that question. I think it's a really good question. How is it that a language not spoken by practically any members of this population could become the dominant spoken language. And the general understanding is that it was a multi-staged process, which began with a literary revival in Eastern Europe, connected with an Eastern European strand of Jewish Enlightenment uh, discourse, seeking to connect Jews to this prouder ancient period. But at that time, in the mid-19th century, through literature and literary production, Then following that, you start to see the beginnings of uh, Hebrew language advocates in Palestine. And here we're talking the very, very early years of the 20th century, those who wanted to make the jump from a literary revival to a vernacular language revival. So in 1890, a Hebrew language committee was created in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. very small circle of activists wanting to modernize the language in a way that would make it suitable for, for modern needs. So in that way, quite similar to the Arabic language academies in Damascus and in yeah. Cairo that were emerging more or less around the same period. Um, Right around this time in the first decade of the 20th century, you start to see the first uh, Hebrew language schools uh, promoted by members of the Zionist movement from the preschool level, eventually all the way up through the university level, such that a new generation of young people would indeed be imbued with Hebrew from their very early years. And then finally, there was a, a sort of process of enforcement, wherein activists, usually young people, high school aged folks, would um, censure or yell at or throw things at or what what have you, people who were not uh, using Hebrew to the liking of these activists. Wow. However, you know, with all that said, that was quite successful in um, making Hebrew stick as the dominant language of this community. However, and this is an important piece of my argument, it did not efface other languages, nor did Mm -hmm. it erase the perceived relevance of languages other than Hebrew.
0: Sure. And being that people would continually migrate in uh, from other parts of the world, it was not sort of like a one-time deal. You get everyone to speak Hebrew and then it's pretty much over, right? This is a continued project and and process, particularly during the Mandate period.
2: Um, That's right, and actually only really increasing over time because the numbers start out really quite tiny but increase to more significant numbers as you get into the 1930s.
0: And I think there's been some interesting work done on sort of the internal culture wars of of the Jewish community in Mandate Palestine during this time, and especially um, post-1948 in the state of Israel. Uh, one of the questions I want to raise is is that of the mandate itself, the British mandate, right? So the Jewish community in Palestine is living under the regime of the British mandate system, right, whose administrative language is, of course, English. So how does this question of Hebrew fit into uh, the scheme of the mandate?
2: So it's a great question. So, you know, for the first time in 1920, the British... Um, put put forward a a, a law or, uh, uh, that that stated that Hebrew would be one of three officially recognized languages of the of the mandate, although the mandate would be a couple years later mm-hmm. um, and from that point onwards, the Zionist establishment um, really across the board across all of its political varieties. Um, made it something of a priority to make sure to try to address British offices always in Hebrew, right? Because they believed that it was their right. It had been stated as a right. And they wanted to make clear to the British that they were indeed a national community with a national language. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that perhaps they themselves doubted whether they were indeed united around Hebrew. And so they would again and again send these letters, requests, petitions, forms to sanitation, police, police, whatever offices in Hebrew Um, And oftentimes they would receive replies from these offices saying, we apologize, but we don't have the manpower or the wherewithal to process Mm -hmm. your request in Hebrew. So may we request that you attach a translation with your request. And indeed, these institutions really had to acquiesce. They, They couldn't simply, you know, they wanted to stand their ground for ideological reasons, but for practical reasons. And I document this over the course of the mandate period started hiring English language translators in their offices. Mm -hmm. Um, Those who wanted to get those sorts of jobs started looking for ways to learn English. So I documented the appearance of these privately run schools of English, like Berlitz was actually one Mm -hmm. of them, but there were a bunch of other local varieties, Um, especially kids of more modest means and less less well-to-do families saw this as a path towards steady employment, either for the Mandate government itself or for these Jewish institutions that were employing English speakers. Mm -hmm. So altogether, you start to see a whole kind of ecosystem of of commerce, of bureaucracy, all of which required knowledge of English for its operations. And
0: thank you for that little glimpse inside, I guess, the Zionist and Mandate archives, which we've talked about in previous episodes with our our colleague Zach Foster, talked about using these sources for the history, not only of uh, the... The history of uh, Zionist movement in Pal- in 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 Mandate Palestine, but also indeed the history of uh, Arab communities who lived in Palestine. It's a it's a it's a source base, and through that source base, you might get a skewed perception that Hebrew is more ascendant than it really was. Precisely because that. Um, That archive is sort of the site of construction, that uh, bureaucracy is the site of construction uh, of this new language.
2: Yeah, you know, I'm glad you mentioned the archive, because, you know, this is something I I realized as I was looking for sources, right? I went into this project with the idea that I was going to look for sources about languages other than Hebrew. And in my mind, I was going to think about Arabic, I was going to think about English, German, and Yiddish. But then you actually get to the archives, whether it's the state archive, the Central Zionist archive, or a, a a lot of local or organizational archives. And you have to ask for folders that exist. And it turns out that the folders that exist or the collections that exist tend to be collections that document kind of hegemonically important parts of the project. So, of course, these turned out to be collections about Hebrew, right? Hebrew promotion, Hebrew education, uh, Hebrew, you know, teaching to immigrants. And it was within those files created to document the progress of Hebrew that indeed I found all of the indications that Hebrew, for all its ascendants, was not entirely dominant, right? I found the cracks in that pro-Hebrew discourse, and that's where I found really some of the richest sources. And what was
3: the official or unofficial position of the British Mandate Administration on the language policy? Were they um, fearing this kind of rising hegemony of Hebrew? Were they investing in promotion of other languages?
2: So the British, you know, as, as was the case elsewhere in the empire, was quite sectarian in their thinking, uh, or ethnic or religious in their thinking, right? They quite naturally, to them, it felt natural to divide the population of Palestine according to ethnic or religious background. They looked at the population of Palestine, they saw Jews, they saw Arabs, um, and they essentially crafted all manner of policy around this perceived division, which, of course, as we know, is a simplified distinction, because these categories are much more overlapping than um, they perhaps realized. So with respect to education, they established sort of a possibility for a Jewish educational system, and they established an, an Arab educational system. And then they also marked Arabic as the national language of the Arab community and Hebrew as the national language of the Jewish community. So as far as they were concerned, they were perfectly happy seeing Hebrew as the official language of the community. Now, did that mean that they were willing to grant full sort of language support to that community, given its really tiny numbers? In practice, no. And I found documents in the the British National Archives that there were voices saying, this is ridiculous. You know, why Why have we suggested that everything can be done in three languages? You know, d- don't they know that English is really the language of this administration? So you can see some internal tension about this. But the general principle of multilingual support was still very much the, the policy.
1: Um, did the British sort of, in a sense, play a role through this policy that you were describing Um, of saying, okay, we have a Jewish community and Hebrew schools for the Jewish community. Did they play a role in fostering, um, this, uh, or sort of bolstering the arguments of the, uh, Zionists who thought that we should all speak
2: Hebrew? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there was a certain kind of like reciprocal process that went on, which is that the British British recognized Hebrew because they wanted to see a national community with Mm. a national language. That that was how they could make sense of the diversity that they were seeing. Meanwhile, you have advocates within the Jewish community after world war one and also before that hebrew should be the national language so they see this british statement as an enormous sort of wind at their back to mm-hmm. promote what they believe should be the policy anyway however and i found sources to the to this effect they were continually afraid that sh- if jews were not sufficiently committed to hebrew that the british would actually realize that they were wrong in their assessment mm. that hebrew was a necessary language and i found um, multiple documents stating, you know, we—that is, Jews—have to use Hebrew, lest the British retract those language rights and national recognition that they've granted us. So really, really kind of fascinating dynamic going on there.
0: Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Aaron Hutchinson and Paulina Ivanova talking to Dr. Leora Halperin about her research for uh, her new book from Yale University Press, Babel in Zion. Uh, I want to remind our listeners that for information about how to get that book and other relevant books related to today's topic, you can visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we have a great select bibliography uh, for you to enjoy. So, Dr. Halperin... Uh, I recently read an article in Haaretz talking about the forgotten efforts of... um Various, uh, I guess, largely Mizrahi Jews, but people uh, in Israel uh, to promote Arabic language as a possible uh, alternative language, actually, uh, for uh, the Jewish community and one that would ensure their integration into the the larger population of uh, what in Mandate Palestine, especially was a majority uh, Arabic-speaking population. And so, I'm curious. You know, we've we've talked about official languages. There were three. We've talked about Hebrew. We've talked about English. Let's talk about that. Thing third one arabic how did arabic fit into this equation
2: yeah my understanding is that especially among a, a small group of of mizrahi um intellectuals there was a belief that hebrew and arabic were essential languages for this community so i didn't see any widespread suggestion that hebrew should not be part of the picture in right. fact Um, Sephardi and Mizrahi intellectuals were actually quite, quite at the forefront of Hebrew promotion as well. But what set them apart is both the ability to operate within an Arabic language intellectual landscape and also to promote knowledge of Arabic as a possible bridge between these incoming European immigrants and the existing population, be it the native Jewish population or the native Muslim or Christian population. So they were some of the most important early activists promoting Arabic. But what I found so interesting and important is that, you know, contrary to to maybe some perceptions, not all Ashkenazi immigrants were oblivious to the importance of Arabic. Some were. But many, especially in educational settings, uh, political um, circles, understood that the Jewish community was a tiny minority. It mm-hmm. eventually grew to um, under half um, right before 1948. But for most of this period, we're talking about a really clear minority living in an overwhelmingly Arabic-speaking um, setting in a region that was an overwhelmingly Arabic-speaking region, and recognized that Arabic would have some role to play. Now, the question was, what role should it play? And therein, we find some really interesting internal debates about what exactly was the nature of connection that the Jewish community should have with Arabic. So some of the range of possibilities, and you'll see that these directly contradict each other, there were some intellectuals, especially academic orientalists at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, most of whom were of German origin, who saw um, Arabic as a bridge towards appreciation of classical Arabic and Islamic civilization. Mm-hmm. Right for them, the you know the, the golden age of um, early Islam, the Abbasid period was a a period of great cultural and civilizational achievements and one that Jews should learn about. They also saw Arabic, and in this case classical Arabic, as a very important grammatical lesson in Semitic languages, right? So if incoming Jews were to truly understand the grammatical basis of Hebrew, they would, of course, need to know Arabic grammar. So Arabic and classical Arabic specifically became a way to create a bridge towards this kind of great classical language and culture.
0: And this is really critical because the creation of modern Hebrew requires the creation of lots of new words, which requires you to derive those words. And with a a three sort of three consonant root system, such as is both Hebrew and Arabic, it's easy to see why knowledge of how that language worked would be critical to understanding what derivations would look like in Hebrew.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And there were educators at all levels, especially the high school levels in the schools, who, you know, in introductions to their Arabic textbooks that they wrote for Jewish students, gave that quite explicitly as a rationale for learning classical Arabic. Now, needless to say, uh, or maybe it needs to be said, that this particular approach to studying Arabic was quite ignorant of and oblivious to the lived communities of, of, of Arabic speakers in Palestine. Right. As far as they were concerned, that community was speaking colloquial Arabic, which was a degenerate form of the language, living, you know, lifestyles that they saw as basically degenerate, sort of a, a general kind of Orientalist perception, yeah. and was simply not relevant to the educational goals of this Hebrew-speaking community. Now, as opposed to them... There were other elements within the Jewish community of Palestine and not only um, Mizrahi Jews, but also Ashkenazi Jews, especially in the labor movement that saw day to day encounters with Arabic speakers as essential to the goals of the labor movement because the labor movement Mm -hmm. wanted to show that Zionism was good for Palestine, not oh, wow. just good for Jews, but good for all residents of Palestine. That um, would in, you know, increase, um, you know, productivity, create economic opportunities. That they would be able to come in, bring their socialist credentials, and help organize Arab workers as well. So for them learning colloquial Arabic and reaching out to especially Arab workers and peasants was a way for them to establish the legitimacy of their own political program. So uh, on that side of things, I found, for example, newspaper supplements in major labor Zionist publications with little Arabic lessons, sample dialogues, conversations, often quite utopian in their nature, right? (laughs) Anticipating very pleasant and lovely interactions. Um, with the, the, the clear view that, you know, if, if only communication could happen, these peasants and workers would recognize the great benefits of Zionism, would drop all opposition and would welcome these immigrants um, into their country. And of course, that didn't happen. But that was that was that was the hope.
3: So you mentioned these uh, lessons of Arabic, of colloquial Arabic in the newspapers. What were some of the different avenues of learning Arabic? Where was Arabic Uh, Instructed and was it where was classical Arabic instructed? Where was colloquial Arabic learned?
2: By and large, in most of the Zionist schools, especially in urban areas, and the urban areas we're talking basically Tel Aviv, Haifa, and Jerusalem during this period, we're focusing on classical Arabic. It was more in the rural settlements, the kibbutzim, which were affiliated with the socialist-oriented labor Zionist movement, that were experimenting more with teaching colloquial Arabic. And this sometimes would be accompanied with visits to local villages. I have a great selection of photos showing, documenting one of these visits. You know, they're Mm. drinking coffee together. They're eating, you know, hummus together. Everybody seems happy. Right. This is a kind of propaganda tool. Right. Look at how successful this is. Um, but at least, according to the sources, they they really wanted to believe that this was achieving what they wanted to achieve. Now, I should mention a third approach to Arabic, which was particularly common in the growing military and intelligence opera- apparatus. Right over the course of the mandate period, different Zionist organizations created proto-military organizations, right? The labor Zionists did, as did the right-wing revisionist Zionists. And all of them were using Arabic knowledge as a means of collecting intelligence now whether that meant monitoring the press whether that meant sending folks informants into communities and listening in um, Arabic for them was a way not of creating friendly relations but of you know getting the upper hand in a conflict between um, Mm. between enemies so all of these things and you can see they're all quite different from one another were existing in a kind of uneasy relationship with one another within the Jewish community
0: Sure. And I mean, particularly on, on that second point you made about sort of quotidian interaction uh, in, in the countryside, especially, it's important to point out that one way or another, and I'm not, I'm not an expert in Hebrew by any means, but that Arabic in certain forms did work its way into what became modern Hebrew through those types of interactions.
2: Yeah, no, this is something I didn't look at in the book because I'm not a linguist, but Mm -hmm. there's all sorts of interesting observations that have been made about all of the languages that I've mentioned, Yiddish Mm -hmm. and English and Arabic and German. All of them in various ways have made their way into modern Hebrew, whether in terms of vocabulary, in terms of syntax, slang, um, come from exactly these languages that were being encountered and and discussed.
0: And even pronunciation. I mean, the way people pronounce Hebrew is very much related to, you know, whether their ancestors spoke Arabic or Yiddish,
3: absolutely. So during the mandate period, what percentage of the Jewish population of Palestine um, was able to either read or speak colloquial Arabic?
2: Well, I don't have specific numbers. I know that the percentage declined over time. Okay, because that oh. and that's because a greater and greater mm-hmm. number of European immigrants were coming, which made the proportion of of native speakers of Arabic lesser and lesser, relatively speaking. Because remember, the Jewish population of Palestine before Zionist immigration was about five to 10% of the population. Nearly all of them knew Arabic, at least to some extent, because they really were immersed in an environment that was Arabic speaking. So it was a declining number with a sort of a slight increase created by attempts to teach Arabic in the schools. But you know, as interviews and and such make clear, the language was never taught very well and was compounded by the fact that the overall trajectory over the course of the mandate period was towards social and economic separation. Never complete, Mm -hmm. of course, Mm. but towards more and more separation such that these day-to-day contacts weren't nearly as prevalent as they would have been at the beginning of the period.
1: One thing um, I'm sort of curious Curious about is this seeming paradox um, Where on the one Hand uh, we have this idea Of the Jews as a people Extending back into Ancient history Um, on the Other hand you have a community That's almost trying to constitute Itself as a linguistic Nation Um, And so I'm just curious about um, Sort of the role That language played in Nationalism
2: yeah um, It's a huge tension it's as, as Jews in, in Europe turned towards nationalism at a time that groups around the world are turning to nationalism, yeah. they felt an enormous amount of anxiety about their potential to, in fact, fit into the mold of what a nation was supposed to look like. Because in all sorts of ways, they did not have the features of a nation. They did not not all live on the same territory. Not even most of them lived on the same territory Um, They didn't speak the same language. They had very different cultures and customs, really much more so than almost any other national group you could imagine. Um, And so in taking up Hebrew as a national language, very much on the model of other national groups trying to promote, whether it's Czech or Polish Mm -hmm. or Romanian, they, on the one hand, wanted to assert that, yes, indeed, Jews... Around the world are united by this ancient language that theoretically all of their ancestors spoke, right? Um, that's the narrative anyway—that they all come from this same Arabic-speaking ancestral population and can be united. Um, but they're—they're they're quite worried about the potential for that really to—to—to to, to carry forward. They worry that Jews, who have been marked by many non-Jews as a kind of parasitic, incomplete, degenerate what have you, population would remain as such, not only in other people's eyes, but in their own eyes. So there was a kind of urgency of kind of attaining proper national status, um, both through uniting on a single piece of territory, of course, in Palestine, and also on a cultural front, trying to promote Hebrew, Um, but always with this kind of ambivalence and, and fear about whether it could actually work out.
0: All right, welcome back to Autumn History Podcast. Chris Grayton here with Aaron Hutchinson and Polina Ivanova talking to Dr. Leora Halperin about her book, Babylon Zion, out from Yale University Press. We've been talking a little bit about the role of Hebrew language uh, in nationalism. And I want to ask some of the big questions that have been asked quite a bit about the mandate period uh, in Palestine, uh, and that is sort of... And I want to interrogate um, this question of the national home, the Jewish national home in Palestine. Of course, this was something that was promised by the British with the Balfour Balfour Declaration. It was something certainly sought out by the Zionist movement and those who came uh, to Palestine during that period. But what did it really mean? What What would be a Jewish national home? And was it uh, mutually exclusive with um, a national home for the other people who lived in Palestine. Uh, in the in the area of language, I think you've pointed to in- interesting tensions and and ambiguities about what the 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 nature of this um, polity was going to be. Whether it would be multilingual, cosmopolitan, much like the people who were arriving or whether it would take on uh, something different?
2: Well, you know, I think one one important thing to recognize about the history of of the Zionist movement during this period is that the eventual endgame was not at all clear. Um, and in fact, there were multiple competing, not just beliefs, but also assumptions about what might occur, and the 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 the, the decision to really push in the direction of statehood is really a pro- product of the 1940s. It's re- relatively late in the mandate period that you start to see the mainstream Zionist um, institutions coalescing around a demand for a state. It's really only in the wake of a ho- of the Holocaust, that that in the war that this really becomes the dominant paradigm. Before that point, you can see in writings a whole range of different possibilities, whether a cultural center, whether a small territory within Palestine that has some degree of autonomy, whether a commonwealth of the British Empire, because, of course, they have no idea the British Empire is going to be disappearing. Um, And so I think the, the... Assumption, at least among many, that this Jewish community would not actually be sovereign or or independent, but would have some sort of relationship or integration with its surroundings, led to a much more expansive um, set of a range of, of thoughts about language and also about politics. And I think from we might Anticipate from the perspective of today in today's politics. Um, So, for example, in the case of Arabic, um, I think really up until the 1940s, there is an assumption that this community is going to be living in a majority Arabic speaking um, setting. Now, what did that mean? There were disagreements. It was unclear. There was not consensus. But there certainly it certainly couldn't be denied that um, that language would have very important relevance for the community.
3: You spoke of the disparate voices in language different visions of language programs. Did these different visions of language correspond to different visions of a future state?
2: So I think on the margins that's that is true that there were those who said, "You know what, promoting Arabic is consistent with a vision of really a binational state, right." Harmony between these populations. Um, There were small groups of those who really were ardent Yiddishists who came to Palestine, um, who really wanted to promote Yiddish culture. There were some German speakers who were in love with German culture. But the point I wanted to make in the book was not that there were these huge communities of resistors. The fact was that in the Mandate period, it was already pretty much a done deal that if there was to be a national language it was going to be Hebrew. right? Hebrew in, in a certain sense had already won mm-hmm. and British recognition was just one part of that but nonetheless the victory of Hebrew did not mean that these other languages became irrelevant and in fact talking about the relevance of those languages was a way to talk about the continuing relevance of these various populations and entities outside of this small, low-growing Jewish community, right? How should this small community of Jews relate to the world Jewish population who were not speakers of Hebrew? How should they relate to the British Empire? How should they relate to European nations regarded as arbiters of high culture? How should they relate to... The Arabic speakers of Palestine, right? So in thinking about these language questions, they were asking much bigger questions about political and cultural relationships to that which lay beyond their immediate project.
0: Well, I think in some way, this work is complementary to what Shireen Saitley has done in her, her book, Men of Capital, which is about a uh arab palestinian capitalists during the mandate period exploring the 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 history of people who don't conform to the binaries who don't conform to the stereotypes that are typically evoked in the historical exception that is israel palestine in in the in the historiography and i like the way both of these works kind of speak to you know going beyond uh those categories and of course when studying israel palestine a very well-studied case in comparison with a lot of small parts of the world, you know. Uh, what people have in mind, of course, is is ongoing political debates in the present that continue to be at the center of both debates and conversations, but also the framing of the history of the modern Middle East, especially in the Anglophone world and probably elsewhere throughout the world, right? If a school has an elective in... Um, the history of the Middle East, it's probably about Israel-Palestine, right? So I, I'm i am wondering how you feel that your work, and it doesn't necessarily have to, but how it, it speaks to uh, cultural debates in Israel today.
2: Well, I think that language, not just in Israel-Palestine, but also elsewhere, is, it, is an excellent window into the relations between a small community and its context and it's overlapping circles of influence i think it's true even of larger national communities such as let's say anglophone united states but especially in the case of small national groups whenever you look at language politics you're always looking at sort of relationships and cultures um so right if you look at the 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 array of language questions in the state of Israel today, or in Israel-Palestine, more broadly, you can still today see a set of conflicts and anxieties. Um, So, for example, Arabic remains obviously relevant. Arabic is the language of the population of, you know, the West Bank and Gaza, which Israel continues to occupy. That means that Arabic is the language of the occupation, From the perspective of Israelis, it means that from the perspective of Palestinians, Hebrew is the language of the occupation. Mm. So in both, in both Mm. directions, right, the perceived threat is experienced in linguistic terms. Um, English is not the language of a formally ruling authority over Palestine or, or Israel I should say today but in as we know in all sorts of unofficial ways whether it's political support or foreign aid or anything else uh, the United States now another major speaker of English is, has enormous influence so discussions about English in Israel are very much discussions about the relationship of this country to the United States or the larger Anglophone world and then lastly I should say that the state of Israel is still a country of of immigration Israel very much likes to promote the immigration of Jews um now, though, the populations have changed. There was a large Russian-speaking uh, immigration in the 1980s and 1990s, many of whom are still very much speakers of Russian. They've not left that behind. Uh, there's an Ethiopian immigration speaking Amharic. Um, there's now a sizable immigration of French Jews um, coming from, from from France just in very recent years. You also have... A, a, growing waves of of foreign workers and asylum seekers. Many of them are living in Tel Aviv, speaking a huge range of other languages. And so the politics of language very much map on to bigger political questions in Israel and Palestine today.
0: And perhaps it's worth saying something about the consequences of the period you're studying for for Arabs who do end up living in Israel and are citizens of Israel, a very significant minority, people who still speak uh, Arabic um, to a great extent, but also are kind of compelled to operate in a in a Hebrew dominated environment. Even in many cases, and this happens in other countries in the region, such as Turkey, having to take um, names that are uh, Hebrew names while kind of keeping a separate Arabic name, right?
2: Absolutely, yeah. The Palestinian citizens of Israel are uh, have a really quite fascinating language practice. Really with many exceptions, they're bilingual because they're compelled to learn Hebrew in their schools, but they're also studying in separate schools for um, the Arabic-speaking community. Um, Now, attitudes towards that community from the Jewish population very much maps onto the range of political opinion among Jewish Israelis. So on the one hand, you have some Jewish Israelis trying to promote the creation of Jewish-Arab bilingual schools in coordination with Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, some of some of them are called the hand-in-hand Yad Vashem schools. Um, one of which was actually firebombed in the end of 2014 by someone who came from a different part of the political spectrum, ah. who very much wants to reduce the. Um, use of Arabic in the public sphere to diminish the official um, status of the language. So you could, and in fact, the the recent proposal of what I think in English was called the Nation-State Bill, to establish more formally the Jewish character of the state, had in it a clause that would demote the status of Arabic as an official language. So, right, yet again, right, across the spectrum you can see this, the Palestinian population of Israel kind of as pawns Um, in Jewish-Israeli debates and also very much as actors in their own right in trying to to assert their role and their place and their importance as 20 or so percent of the population.
0: Right. And I mean, you reminded me of uh, some of the work by this uh, hip hop group, Dem. They They release songs, even the same song, both in Arabic and Hebrew sometimes. Obviously, thinking about the intended audience for that music becomes extremely relevant when making those linguistic decisions.
3: And to come back to the role of English, in the time period that you studied, did you find Arabs and Jews communicating in the mandate language in in English between themselves? And is it sometimes a choice made today?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that's another really important use of English um, as a lingua franca, as inept as Uh. as that term is for English. English is the, the lingua franca of Uh, Not only um, Jews and Palestinians, but also between Jews in Israel and Jews elsewhere in the world, right? Mm -hmm. Hebrew is not the common language of Jews around the world. In fact, it's much more likely to be English serving in that role.
1: I think your research is really fascinating and it sort of um, challenges... Our ideas of a nation as a sort of set thing, but rather shows that it's in fact a process that's ongoing even today.
2: Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the really big conclusions that I came out with is that for all the rhetoric about a nation being solid, united, you know, moving forward, in fact, when you look at the actual workings of a national community, it is much more fractured, much more diverse than any of the official rhetoric would have. And in fact, all of those fractures can give wonderful insight into some of the, you know, interrelations between that community and other national or non-national communities.
0: And for those who are politically committed also help, uh, widen their horizons of, uh, political futures and political imaginaries that's right well uh, Dr. Halperin thanks so much for talking to us on the podcast the interview went long but it was really a great uh, discussion I really appreciate you kind of giving us some comments about how you think your work on Mandate Palestine and language diversity in Mandate Palestine fits into the context of our present Um, I'm sure that that's a topic of great interest for a lot of people in our audience and, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast today thanks for having me now, for those who want to find out more about today's topic, you can check out Leora Halperin's book, Babble in Zion, from Yale University Press. There's a link on our webpage to, where you can find out how to buy or at least locate that book. We've also got a bibliography on the website that contains other important works relevant to today's topic. And that's a great place to check out other episodes related to the history uh, of Israel-Palestine, such as um, the aforementioned interview with Shireen Saitley, also our interview with Anat Morville about Doctors and Mandate Palestine and as well as many other relevant episodes. Uh, I want to also invite you all to check out our Facebook page. Um, There's over 20,000 followers there commenting and uh, sharing our latest content and that is where you can find out about all our latest content. I invite you all to join in next time. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, take care.